Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org. The Bible says Glenn mentioned that Jesus came and sacrificed his life. And the Bible says that because he did that, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, including the devil himself, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, every conscious being. Amen. So it's my great privilege today to close out the uh, sermon series, That's a Great Question, And uh, the title of my message today, I've entitled it, Can Science and Christianity Coexist? And the short answer is yes, they obviously do. Uh, But that's not necessarily what people conclude immediately after hearing that question. So the first point I want to make, and then I'll read from the scripture. The first point that I want to make is this. Science doesn't contradict Christianity Instead, Christianity itself gave rise to science. Christianity is what gave rise to science. Now, let me tell you right off the bat, there are two issues that I won't deal with today that I will deal with in a few weeks from now when I talk about creation. One is, is the earth billions or thousands of years old? Won't deal with that today. And number two, is the theory of evolution evolution true? And again, we'll deal with that in a couple weeks when I talk about creation. But um, today, I want to talk about the fact that Christianity is what gave rise to science. Rodney Stark is a sociologist of religion, and so he does a lot of studies in the history of religion. And he's done a study of history and the religion and its connection with science. And his conclusion, along with the conclusion of others, is this, that science as we know it today arose in Christian medieval Europe and nowhere else. Not in Egypt, not in Greece with Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, not in Rome, not in China, nowhere else but medieval Christian Europe. And there's a reason for that. The reason is this. That Christian doctrine and Christian teaching, Christian theology and Christian teaching about the natural world was based on the Bible and its revelation of God. And uh, so I want to read from the scripture and it begins right at the beginning, this idea that they got. This is what the Bible says in Genesis 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, or day one. Then I'm going to skip down to Genesis 1, 26 to 28 because it talks about the creation of human beings. And this is what the Bible says. Then God said, let us, lay, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals, and over all the creatures that creep along the face of the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that doesn't mean crush it and rule it like a tyrant. It means to take care of it. And that's what the next word says. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so the, the ecologist movement today, they don't know this or accept it, most of them, but it's based on what the Bible says, that human beings were created to take care of God's creation. That's one of the reasons we're here. Now, Christian theologians believed and gave rise to the practice of science because of two things. Number one, they believed that God was a rational God, that he had thought processes, that he spoke and he thought and he reasoned and he created a rational, orderly world that had laws that governed it, that were stable and that could be studied and that could be discovered. And that is why science arose in Christian medieval Europe and nowhere else, because nowhere else was there that kind of faith that an orderly God had created an orderly world. The second reason that Christian theologians gave rise to science in the Middle Ages. It didn't just blow up out of nowhere. It started in the Middle Ages with the technology that was developed then. But they also believed that God created human beings in his image so that they could think and reason and discover the creation that God made. And some theologians say they could even improve on the creation that God made. And this is what they did. That's why we have different breeds of horses and different breeds of cattle. It's human beings working with God's creation to improve it. And so out of that thinking, scientists arose who believed that you could study nature, the, the created world, you could understand it, you could explain how it works and even predict how it works. And that's where science came from. In fact, most of the first scientists, the first ones, people like Nicholas Copernicus and Johannes Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton and even Galileo, who got in trouble with the church because of his scientific views, they were all devout Christians, every one of them. Even Galileo, who was sentenced to nine years of house arrest, and he was under house arrest from the ninth year before he died until the day he died, he died a devout Christian. In fact, he has a saying that goes something like this. He said, mathematics is the language with which God has ruled, God rules the universe or God has made the universe. And so they were Christians, the first scientists. They believed that God had written two books. The first one, obviously, was the book of Scripture, or the books of Scripture, to be more accurate. The second book, and that's special revelation, by the way. The books of Scripture are God's special revelation of him, of himself. There are things in the Bible that we, about, that we know about God that we wouldn't know about God unless the Bible told us about them. But they also believed that nature was God's book. Sorry about that. Y'all put off your phones now, right? 
<laughs> I did not. Sorry about that. I've done that before. That was Christian Kramer from the Artesia home, by the way. Anyway, so uh, they, uh, they believed that nature was God's book and that you could study nature and learn about God. And they even believed that it was an act of worship to examine nature, to study it, to understand how it works, and then to predict how it works, and then to, to do things with God's creation based on that knowledge. They believed that that was not only something you could do, but that you should do as an act of worship to God. No other culture believed that. In fact, Socrates believed, the great philosopher, and he was a great philosopher, believed it was a waste of time to study nature because it was the physical world. And the physical world was inferior to the thought world. But the Christians believed that the physical world was God's creation and worthy of studied, being studied and that it was an act of worship to do so. And so my second point is this. Christianity and science are not in conflict, but Christianity and scientism are in conflict. And I'll explain what scientism is in a moment. First, I want to just give a, a very general, basic description of Christianity. Christianity is specific trust in God based on the knowledge that he has revealed about himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they testify also not only to his creation and ruling of the world, but to the redemption that would come through Christ Jesus of Nazareth that would come to humankind. So that's Christianity. So God the Father is the creator of the universe. He sent Jesus into the world to redeem the world and to bring it back from the penalty, the power, uh, and the presence of sin. So one, right now we're, we're, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. As our lives go on and we grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit delivers us from the power of sin over our lives. And one day when Jesus comes, we're going to receive a new body and we're going to be delivered from the total presence of sin. There will never again be sin in our life once Jesus comes, if you're a believer. That's the day that I look forward to. As one song has been written, I will never break his heart again after that. So that's Christianity. God the Son uh, is the co-creator of the world, by the way. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 3 says of John 1, All things were created by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so he was the co-creator. He was God become a human being. And through his, sin, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension to heaven, he saved humanity from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and one day even from the, the presence of sin. And then there's God, the Holy Spirit. We're speaking of a triune God. He was also active in creation, as we've read, that he was hovering upon the waters when the word of God came and said, let there be light. So he was preparing the chaos for the order, for the order that would come when God spoke his word into it. So that's Christianity in a nutshell. There's way more to it than that, of course. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, that's what it is. There is nothing in what I've said that is inherently contradictory to anything in science. 
But there is something that's contradictory to scientism. Here's what science means. And by the way, I'm not a scientist. In fact, in grades 1 through 12, I didn't have kindergarten. I was too old. They didn't have kindergarten in those days. But uh, in those first 12 uh, years of my education, I thought science was boring. And I'm not a scientist. It wasn't until I got to college and took biology for dummies, which is really biology 101, and uh, started to learn about DNA that I started to become fascinated with science. The complexity of DNA and what it does in your body is just fascinating. And there's no way in God's good earth, of course, I'm a Christian, so I say that, that it could have just happened by chance. But anyway, uh, I digress. When we talk about science, I talked to uh, two of our members, Jonna, John and Joanna, and they're both scientists. He's an engineer. I think she's in, in, involved in physics, or was. They're both retired now. But John Bruin said this to me. He said, science is not a religion. It's primarily a method. And so this is a, this is a definition of science that I got from talking with him. It, and it goes something like this. Science is the organized effort to accumulate, accumulate knowledge of the world based on observation of evidence gained through the five senses. So it's based on knowledge that we can get by what we can see, taste, touch, feel, and smell. It's based on that kind of knowledge. It's subject to reason, to our thinking, and to the laws of mathematics. Scientists accumulate this knowledge for a purpose, not just to fill books with stuff, but to generate theories uh, about that predict how the universe is going to work. So the, the purpose of gathering scientific knowledge is to construct a theory. And the theory is then submitted to a test by experimentation for either falsification or verification. In other words, it's tested. All scientific theories are supposed to be tested to see whether or not they're true or false. And so every scientific theory that's ever been proposed, technically speaking, is subject to testing and could be disproven at some point in the future. That's what science is. It's not, it's not a philosophy. It's a method. But it is based on a philosophy, and some scientists have made science a religion. But first, let me give you an illustration of what it means to test a theory. Aristotle was a brilliant philosopher in Greece uh, before Christ was born. And he did a lot of studying of nature. He classified animals and plants and rocks and so on and, and put them in categories. And he had a theory. His theory was this. If you took a 10-pound rock and a 5-pound rock and dropped them off the Parthenon, which was a great uh, classic... Greek uh, arc, uh, piece of architecture, and you drop them, the 10-pound rock would fall twice as fast as the 5-pound rock. Now, that seems like common sense, right? But the truth is, he never experimented on that theory. He never dropped the 10-pound rock and the 5-pound rock at the same time to see if what he said was really true. So he was not a scientist. And the fact is, they both fall at the same speed, believe it or not. That's what really happens. That's what happened when someone tested his theory. So a scientist is not just someone who studies nature. 
A scientist is someone who makes theories or develops theories about how nature is supposed to work. And there's nothing in Christianity that's opposed to that. In fact, that idea that you could study nature and figure out how it works and predict how it's going to happen, that comes from the Christian faith, from trust in the God of the Bible, who is a rational God, who made the universe in a way that it could be understood and made people in a way that they could understand what God has made because they're made in his image. Now, here is what I want to say about Christianity and scientism. Christianity is opposed to scientism, which is kind of a religion, although scientists would, who, who, who devote themselves to that would never admit it. But this is what scientism is. I'll try to explain it. It involves, it, first of all, it involves the claim that nothing exists outside of the natural, material, physical world. There's nothing beyond that. So there's no God, no soul, no angels, no miracles. It also often includes a belief that I have called the uniformity of nature in a closed system. In other words, everything that happens in the universe happens to universal laws that never change. They can't be broken. Nothing will ever operate differently than according to those universal laws. So, for example... Jesus can't have risen from the dead because that just doesn't happen. Once you die, you're, die, you're dead, and that's it. He couldn't have healed blind people because that just doesn't happen. If you're born blind, you're going to stay blind unless somebody finds a scientific cure for your blindness, right? So miracles don't happen. God doesn't exist. You don't have a soul. You don't even have a mind, uh, hardcore scientism people believe all you have is a bunch of chemicals uh, reacting in your brain and nerve endings firing uh, and that's all your that's what thinking is you don't have a mind you don't have a purpose all you are as a person is a collection of chemicals a complex one a complex collection of chemical reactions that set off other reactions, and right now they're firing and working and operating, but someday they're going to stop, and scientists can't even explain why life stops. They can't explain the difference between living and non-living things. So that's scientism. Physical world only, universal natural laws only, no miracles, no resurrections, no eternal life, no soul, no mind, none of that stuff. And there are a fair amount of people that believe that. And I'm not trying to cast a bad light on them and saying they're all bad people, but I'm just saying this is what's, what's believed by many people who practice science. And they're also atheists, also atheists usually, by the way. And so uh, that's, that's what Christianity is opposed to. And one of the conclusions of scientism is something like this that the universe came into being from nothing, caused by nothing, for no reason. That's how we all got here. Nothing caused it. We came from nothing, and we're here for no purpose. And uh, that's one of the conclusions of scientism. And for many, science has become, defined in that way, has become a religion. And I'd just like to share with you briefly uh, six events that scientism... The religion of science cannot explain. Number one, 
It can't explain how something came from nothing. Can't explain that. Number two, it cannot explain how the order of our universe came from chaos and disorder. Number three, it can't explain how life came from non-living matter. For example, what's the difference between a dead lion and a living lion? Let's say you have a pride of lions and it's ruled by a brother and he has a younger brother and the younger brother lion dies, the older brother lion is still alive. What's the difference between the live one and the dead one? Scientists can't explain that. They don't know. They're just different. We know one's living, one's not, and that's as far as we can go. But they can't explain how life comes from non-living matter. They can't explain how emer the emergence of personhood comes from an impersonal order. How do personal beings like you and me come from an impersonal universe where, there, where nothing is personal? You know, you hear people often say, well, the universe told me. The universe doesn't say anything. It's not personal. You've got to be a person to be able to speak. And then uh, also it can explain how language came from non-speaking creatures. And there's a very, one of the best philosophers ever in my estimation, his name was Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said that, that human beings were somehow born as linguistic creatures. They were born with language. It's part of what it means to be human. You can't learn a language if you don't already have it. And so he, he and he proved it. I mean, his arguments are virtually unassailable. You can't, you can't refute them. So how does language come from creatures that don't speak? And then finally, the related thing, how does reasoning and thinking come from non-thinking creatures? Scientism cannot explain that. The third thing I want to say, it's a kind of a history lesson. I'll try to be short. But it says, I want to say this, that the origin of the conflict between science and religion is partly a distorted view of history. And here's the view of history that it has. It divides history into several parts uh, after, after the fall of Rome. First, there's the Dark Ages, which existed roughly from the fall of Rome in 500 A.D. to around 13 to 1500 A.D. And in the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages were ruled by superstition and ignorance, fostered primarily by the church and especially by the Roman Catholic Church. So it was a time of believing in witches and spells and magic, and, and there was a lot of that stuff going on. But um, the Middle Ages, and this is what we often also call the Middle Ages, but the Middle Ages were not the Dark Ages. In fact, much of the technology that gave rise to the practice of science happened in the Middle Ages. Then the Dark Ages lasted until a period called the Renaissance, which is roughly around 1300 to 1500 AD. And during the Renaissance, the ignorant, superstitious Europeans rediscovered Greek and Roman art, literature, and history. And so they got smart. That's the Renaissance. Renaissance means to be renewed. So they went from being stupid and ignorant and superstitious to being smart and intelligent and brilliant. That's the Renaissance. And then following the Renaissance from about 1715 to 1789, there was a period called the Enlightenment. And that was when uh, a group of thinkers, of you might call them philosophers, 
sort of cast off faith in God and rejected the teaching of the church and, and blamed the church for the dark ages. They were anti-Catholic, especially and anti-Christian Christian in general. And they were, they were militantly atheist. And not all, but some of what they taught about history and thinking was propaganda because they wanted to do away with Christianity completely. In fact, uh, a man named Dennis Diderot, I think is his name, said something like this. There won't be freedom or we won't be free until the last king is strangled with the intestines of the last priest. That was their attitude towards the Roman Catholic Church. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau talked about Europe during the Dark Ages. He says this, Europe had relapsed into the barbarism of the earliest ages. The peoples of, the part of this part of the world, so enlightened today, I mean, they're enlightened now, but he said they lived some centuries in conditions that were worse than ignorance. And so the, the, the discerned or the perception of a conflict between science and Christianity came partially at least from that period. Now, there were Christian people who believed in science who had kind of dumb theories. And so that's not to say it's all one-sided, but that, was a big, that is a huge source of why we think there might be a conflict between Christianity and science today. today. And so I want to begin with the beginning again. Genesis, uh, we begin in the beginning with God as creator. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the first thing I want to say about that is, there is a real contradiction between Genesis 1 and people who would say, the universe came into being from nothing, by nothing, for nothing. There is a clash between what the Bible says and that kind of thinking. Because the Bible clearly says the universe was created. Now, there are, there are differences among Christians with regard to how God created, and we'll get into that in a few weeks when I talk about creation, but the fact that he created is accepted by all Bible-believing Christians. For example, there are Bible-believing Christians who believe the earth is approximately 3.54 billion years old, and then there are Bible-believing Christians who believe that the world is, the earth is about 7,000 to 10,000 years old, and they both believe that Jesus is Lord. They disagree on that subject. And I'm here to say, or what I, what I would say about that is this. In either, either party, if they can say Jesus is Lord, like we said earlier, if they can confess Jesus is Lord, they're in the kingdom. It's not so important about as to how God created the world, but that he created it. And it makes a big difference in our lives and I don't have time to talk about that today either. But I really, my next point I want to say is this, that there are scientific discoveries that are traffic signs that lead to faith. Traffic signs that lead to faith. Here's a, here's a fact, uh, uh, just an insight that has no bearing on what I'm going to say next, but I just thought it was fascinating. If you would take an atom that has nu a nucleus with protons and neutrons in it, and you would take that atom and expand the nucleus to the size of a baseball, so it's about that big, 
the electrons that are circling it would be circling it at a distance of three to five miles. There, there's mostly just space in atoms. So most of what you see around here, it looks solid, it's just space. And there are forces holding it all together, and that's why we can sit on a chair instead of fall through it. That's just fascinating to me. Anyway, I got kind of nerdy reading about all this stuff and just thought I'd share that with you. But the universe is a vast place. It's vast. It has a hundred billion galaxies that we know about, that we can see. And scientists pretty much agree now that as vast as the universe is, it is not eternal and is not infinite. In other words, the universe that we know has a beginning and it's limited. If we could travel faster than the speed of light, we would reach the edge of the universe at some point. Or if we could live long enough to travel that far, we would some, at some point reach the edge of the universe. It's not infinite and it's not eternal. And this has implications. And the implications go something like this. Scientists say, if we could revert, and by the way, the universe is expanding. It's getting big, I mean, it's taking up more and more space, right? So it's, it's expanding even as we speak and has been ever since what they call the Big Bang. But scientists say that if we could reverse the process and collapse the universe back in on itself, back to that infinitesimal point out of which everything exploded that called the Big Bang, they would say that before that point there was nothing. No space-time continuum, no matter, no physical stuff. There was absolutely nothing, and then all of a sudden something happened. And so the question is, how do you explain that? And the Christian answer, of course, is God said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. The Big Bang, so to speak. Some people are intimidated by the idea of the Big Bang, but actually it shows that the universe had a beginning and something brought that into being. So let me ask you, I mentioned this a few weeks before, but uh, there are two ways to explain this, at least. One is that the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present, loving, compassionate, gracious God of the Bible spoke it into being with his word. That's one explanation. And that requires faith. I cannot prove that to you beyond, any, beyond all shadow of doubt. But I can present a lot of evidence for it. That's why I said the scientific discoveries point the way to faith. The other explanation is it just happened by nothing, for nothing, for no reason. And so it takes faith to be a Christian. Of course it does. But it also takes faith to be a scientist who believes that the universe, as vast as we know it, came into being from nothing, by nothing, for no reason. And my question is, simply, which takes more faith? For me, the second option takes way more faith than the first one. And then I want to I, I conclude uh, with a couple of, of those sign points. And my next point is this. The universe seems to have been designed. There are clear uh, signs of design 
in the universe. And the first one has to do with what I want to call the fine-tuning of the universe. Hugh Ross is a Christian, I think he's an astrophysicist. And he's one of those who believes in the long earth and an old, I mean an old earth and an old universe. And he has some good reasons for believing that, that I would be scared to try to, to, try to get in a debate with him about it. He might be wrong, he might be right, I don't know. But he does believe the Bible. He has calculated that there are 122 factors in the whole universe that if they weren't exactly like they are, there would be no life on the planet. So, for example, the Earth's oxygen level. It's 21% and about 78% nitrogen. And then uh, 2178 is 99, about 1% other stuff like argon and so on. And it's the precise mixture of these elements and gases in the atmosphere that sustains life. If there were 25% oxygen, let's say, there'd be spontaneous fires all over the place, not just in the summertime and the fall like California, but everywhere, every time, which would make life very difficult. And if there were 15% oxygen only, we'd suffocate to death. But there is... 21%. But that's not the only factor. Uh, there's the transparency of our atmosphere that allows a certain amount of light to get in and just that amount. If more came in, everything would burn up. If less came in, we wouldn't have enough sunlight to create oxygen in the plants that grow and so on. And by the way, for example, the, the gravitational force of the earth, if it were altered by, and try to imagine this number, zero point, and then there's 37 zeros, and then a one at the end. So that's the percentage uh, that if the gravitational force of the Earth were altered just that teeny, weeny, teensy, tiny amount, there wouldn't be life on Earth. Things would go floating off into space, or things would collapse in on each other. And there are 122 factors like that. And, and Hugh Ross has calculated that in order for all of those to happen on however many planets there are in the whole universe, which he has calculated there's 10 with 22 zeros after it, that many planets, the chance of that happening just by chance on any one of all those planets is 10 with 137 zeros behind it, which is virtually zero. And so the fine-tuning of the universe, all of those factors that need to be exactly like they are, Christian sciences, scientists and also other scientists who are not Christians but who believe in intelligent design, look at that and say, there has to be a designer. We may not be Christians, some of them are saying, but there has to be an intelligent designer. This can't happen by chance. One of them was a, a philosopher by the name of Antony Flew, who was one of the fam most famous atheist philosophers in the 20th century. And I had to give a report on his philosophy one time. And I, 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 I made the, the statement in my, my report that as he describes this atheistic world, his language doesn't make sense, and so I can't buy his philosophy. And my professor said, you're right, it doesn't make sense. So how can we believe what he says? But anyway, he was, he was a hardcore, stone-cold atheist. And he just would not listen to any argument to the contrary until he started to become aware of what was involved in the DNA molecule. 
And it was the complexity and activity of DNA that persuaded him that atheism was false. He didn't become a Christian. He became a believer in a designer of some kind. Whoever or whatever that was, there had to be some intelligence behind the universe. And so the, the vastness and, and the fine-tuning of the universe points to design, as does the DNA molecule that I just mentioned. Life is complex, and evolutionists say, I'm going to say a little bit about evolution today, evolutionists say that there was the first form of life was a simple, single-celled creature of some kind that arose in a warm, soupy lake or pond, and it just happened by chance. All these chemicals came together, and life happened, right? And, um, but at that time, they didn't know how complex the cell was. In the cell nucleus of an amoeba, one-celled creature, just in the nucleus, there's enough DNA information to equal a whole set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. The whole set. There's that much information. And it's information. It's alphabetical and linguistic information. It's a language. The, the, the bases that make up uh, DNA are ordered in such a way that they, they send a message to the rest of the cell and tell it how to grow. In the whole amoeba itself, there's enough information that equals a thousand sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that's what led Anthony Flew to conclude this can't have happened by chance. This is information. If you saw a message, let's say you're a married man, you saw a message, you come home from work, or you're a married woman, you come home from work, and, or you're just somebody in your family and you come home and you see a message on the table. Gone to buy groceries, be back in 10 minutes. What, who would you assume wrote that? How would you assume that message got there? You would think some at least halfway intelligent being wrote it and left it there so that you could read it and know what was going to happen. And that's what design philosophers and scientists are saying. That the message in the DNA of every cell of every living creature has linguistic information equivalent to English that tells the rest of the organism what to do. And the only place information comes from, the only origin of messages of any kind are what? Intelligent beings. So it, the, the, the creation of the world points to design. It points to intelligent design. And so here's, here's my conclusion. It's very simple. I'm going to cut it off right now. I could go on for quite a long time, and I hope this hasn't been too nerdy for you, but it really gets me uh, wound up. So anyway, but the conclusion is this. Atheistic scientism requires as much, perhaps even more, faith than Christianity. You know, the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. The reality is everybody lives by faith. Whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, you are living by faith. You are trusting that the world's going to work the same way tomorrow as it did today and the day before and the day before and the day before that. That's faith. 
And so, no, science and Christianity are not in conflict with each other. Scientism and Christianity are. Well, I hope that all made sense to you. You might have to listen to it two or three times because I had to read for a month, you know, to put all this together. And uh, I hope it's been a blessing. But let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the rest of our day. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good and that you are God and that you are the one who made us who we are. It's fascinating just to think about what you did. It's even more fascinating to think about why you did it. You created us for a purpose and for a reason. There's a reason that we are here. There's a purpose for our life. And our lives matter to you, and what we do matters to you. And so I pray for everyone who has listened today. I thank them for tuning in. I pray that this has been helpful in whatever um, consideration they may have had between the relationship of science and Christianity, that they're not in opposition, but even more, that you made the world for a reason, you made each one of us for a reason. And so through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to discover what that reason is so that we might bring glory to your name and we ask these things in the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org.